You belong to us. You will be like us. I'm the doctor, I can save the universe using a kettle and some string. And look at me, I'm wearing a vegetable. Hello, faithful listener, and welcome to A Kettle and Some String, where we take a random trip through all the doctor's adventures in time and space. I'm Dave, and my guest today I'm delighted to welcome from the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, it's Mr. Jason Miller and his cat. I think it's just appeared on the screen. How are you doing, Jason? Oh, we are both good long-time listeners of both Doctor Who Literature and Trap One, my other podcast. We'll know that Smudge has been present on just about every recording that I've <laughs> ever done. More importantly, Dave, I've been listening to your show for a while now. I got to ask, am I your first American guest? No. Um, I had an American on a few weeks ago, uh, Melvin Pina. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, I have a six- or seven-week podcast backlog, so I have not gotten to that one yet. But I know Melvin has been on Trap 1, Gallifrey's Most Wanted, so yes, I'm familiar with him. Yeah, he's, he's beat you to it as an American coming over. Well, that's a <laughs> bummer. Well, he's a Southerner, and I'm a New Yorker, so I'm the first proper Yankee to be on your show. We'll, just, we'll give me that oh. credit. <laughs> I'll leave that argument to you, too. I'm not getting involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a great guy. Yes, he is. Um, what story are we going to talk about today? So what's great about your show, Dave, is that you have covered, whether this is randomly or accidental or intentional, you have covered some of the best underrated Doctor Who stories going back to the classic series. You have done Seeds of Doom, one of my favorites. You have done Gunfighters, one of my favorites. If you look at your set list, you have done some great, great, great episodes that do not get nearly enough credit. I think the only episode that I love that you probably haven't got to yet is Ambassadors of Death. So tons of oh, episodes. I would, tons of episodes I'd love to talk about, especially Ambassadors. But what we're talking about today is the Tomb of the Cybermen, which I am happy to say that I saw shortly after it was recovered. I saw this for the first time in January 1993. So I've got 30 years, literally, perspective on this story. Yeah, I mean, that when that came back, it was just like a dream. I don't think any else could believe it. I mean, I was only 10 at the time, but that was just, oh my God, seeing a VHS with recovered, presumed dead, I think was the wording on the VHS. And yeah, a whole, not just one episode, the full story came back. And this is just a classic, this story. Stone Cold I classic. Was, I was fortunate in the States because we got the Troughton package on PBS in 1985. So that's almost 40 years ago now. The problem is there were only five surviving Troughton stories. And one of them was the Dominators. And one of them was the Crotons. And one of them was the Seeds of Death. So of the five surviving Troughton stories, three of them were not pretty high up in fandom's estimation. So we only had season six Trout and when he was mentally checking out of the show, we didn't know how good it could be. Although we also had Mind Robber and War Games, which are two phenomenal stories. This was the earliest 
surviving Troughton that most of us had seen. There were some orphan episodes that were on nth generation bootleg copies. Like I was able to eventually get the bootleg copy of part three of Underwater Menace, which you've also covered on this show. However, this was the first proper cleanup for video early Troughton. And this was an episode that thanks to the novelization, we all thought was going to be one of the all-time greats because the novelization, which I'm holding up right now, is certainly yeah, right yeah. up there as one of Target's best. With an invasion Cyberman on the cover, but let's, let's just not go there. I will tell you, the very first thing that I noticed when I bought the VHS um, in the States in early 1993 is that it was the wrong Cyberman on the cover. I was expecting this Cyberman, the invasion Cyberman. Instead, we got the uh, Moonbase Cyberman. Yeah, I mean, that's Target. Which is... <laughs> Like they, they used to put Tom Baker's face on Patrick Troughton's stories, and yeah, there's anomalies in the Target novels. But um, the Tomb of the Cybermen, uh, this one was done quite quick in terms of as a gestation because the day before episode four of the Moonbase was broadcast was when a new Cyberman story was commissioned. Because they were doing so well in the ratings, they thought right away, right, let's have another story about the Cybermen. Jerry Davis, though, wanted the new serial to have explore their origins as opposed to the siege narrative, as he called it, of the previous ones. Um, and both writers liked Egyptian archaeology, and you can obviously see that in this story. It's very much like a um, mummy's tomb horror story, this really. Um, and the Cybermats were into it because they saw this as an option to sell toys like the Daleks. Didn't quite work like that, but I get the idea. Cheeky uh, Kit Peddler, though, wrote to the BBC asking for an increased fee because he said, well, the other stories have got bigger viewing figures than the other stories. Uh, can I have a bigger fee? But unfortunately, he was turned down. He had to just <laughs> take the fee that he had anyway. It's funny because even though this was aired as the premiere of season five, it was shot as part of the season four production block. So that means that the yeah. first three Cyberman stories were all shot pretty much back to back to back. You have 10th Planet, and Moonbase and this, all shot within less than a year, yeah. and mostly shot within tiny little Lime Grove Studio D, that very minuscule studio where Doctor Who spent most of the 60s. But even though this was the last story made in season four, visual effects-wise, obviously we can talk about how some of these effects don't age very well in HDTV, but Considering this was made just four years after Unearthly Child and in the same studio, this is a phenomenal visual feast and much more technically complex than anything Doctor Who had done before to date. Now, when I'm watching this in 1993 on a college dormitory television with 30 other guys who were laughing their heads off, it didn't quite hold up so well. But if you watch it in sequence after everything else made before that, it looks terrific. Oh, yeah, I think it looks amazing. Around this time as well, there was a lot going on behind the scenes, wasn't there? So um, Ennis Lloyd wanted to leave and wanted Jerry Davis to take over, but he said no. And instead, he was going to become script editor on a new series called The First Lady. And he said, well, what about Peter Bryant as producer? So this one was like a test story, wasn't it, for Bryant as producer and Victor Pemberton being the script editor. And it was believed that Bryant was a bit more likely to join in the fun than Ennis Lloyd, so I think he was a bit more of a jokey guy from what we've heard. And Peter Bryant's wife is one of the uh, 
main guest cast members of this story. So he made yeah, a family yeah. affair pretty quickly. Uh, Morris Barry, of course, is the director on this, and he was happy with the scripts, but sounds like he was quite a serious guy, wasn't it? He was he had his music stand and he's batting in rehearsals and marks on the floor. And if anyone dared go past the mark, no, 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 Fraser, you've got to go back on that mark. Um, and then the famous story, of course, is that in the studio, um, they set the set up slightly wrong, but instead of moving his camera, he refused to move the camera and said, no, let's just break the studio for half an hour. You move the set. <laughs> Which, yeah, he sounds very, very serious, but it's a great stuff he does in the direction on this, I think. I mean, considering that he's working in the smallest studio possible with an end-of-season budget in 1967 dollars, I think he gives you great value. And I know we're going to talk Absolutely. about the cast, but this is a really strong cast doing very interesting things with a couple of notable exceptions. But okay. whatever he was doing, I think the results are just the, the results justify his uh, eccentricities, if you will. I'd agree. Um, as you were saying, the Kaftan was a baddie part specifically written for Shirley Cookland, who was Peter Bryant's wife. Um, and Fraser Hines, of course, didn't recognise her before the makeup and so on, and chatted her up on the boiling hot location, because, of course, we know that Fraser was a bit of a ladies' man. Um, and what was really funny was that when she died in the story, she was so tired because I think she hadn't slept the night before, and the heat of the studio, she actually did fall asleep. And snored not to be up. I know that you're doing these stories out of production order, so you haven't done a whole lot of Troutons yet, but you need to keep no. a running tally. Did Fraser Hines try to date a cast member in this story? I think you'll find that Fraser probably had a girlfriend or a would-be girlfriend in more than half of his uh, Troughton era productions. Yeah, well, he certainly went out with Deborah Watlin at one point, I believe, or certainly tried to chat her up. I think they went on a date, and yeah, he, <laughs> he liked the ladies, did Fraser. Uh-huh, he certainly did. Uh, Deborah Watlin, talking about her, uh, was quite claustrophobic, and so the scene where she's trapped in the revitalizer, she hated it, and someone else actually had to come in and take over with the banging on the inside, because I think she had had enough and didn't want to be in any longer. Um, and she dated, talking about dating, she went on a date with one of the Cybermen in this, uh, Reg Whitehead. He was probably about twice her height, so I'm not quite yeah. sure how that works. <laughs> she must have been sitting on a lot of phone books at the restaurant in order to make eye contact. <laughs> she also, unfortunately, had flu when they were filming episode three. So she wasn't best well in one of the episodes. Um, Which is interesting because episode three is the one that has her famous scene with Patrick yeah. Brown, where she gives a great performance. So it's hard to tell that she's ill. No, I certainly didn't notice that she was ill at all. Um, not at all. Uh, the Cybermats turned out to be a bit like K9 in the remote control, but as soon as they get near the cameras and the radio interference, yeah, they go mad. Didn't go where you want them to go. And so they ended up being pulled on nylon. Old age. Yeah, whereas, whereas K9's wheels were so loud, they would drown out everything else in the production. At least the Cybermats are fairly quiet. Yes. Michael called Gareth, of course, appears as the cyber controller we meet for the first time in this story. Um, and when he died, his character died. It must be something when characters die in this. When his character died, he was left on the floor and everyone else went to tea and didn't just left him there. <laughs> it's funny because... 
when I first saw this, Michael Kilgariff is one of the few names in the cast that I would have recognized being here in the States because one of my very first stories was Robot, where he played the title Robot. And I'd also seen Attack of the Cybermen by then, where he plays, again, the cyber controller. He gets to use his own voice in both Robot and Attack of the Cybermen. He has a very, very impressive voice. One of the bummers in this story is that I was expecting Michael Kilgariff to do his own voice because I'd already heard it in his other Doctor Who appearances. And instead, it's that weird computerized Peter Hawkins concoction and Michael Kilgariff is not actually speaking at all. If you look at the novelization, which is great, I'm going to show you a page. The cyber controller gets to speak in all capital letters. And that's what I wanted (laughs) to hear on the broadcast. And unfortunately... That's not the case. Maybe if the story ever comes out on Blu-ray, they'll give us a special edition with, uh, you know, a proper deep-voiced Cyberman. I quite like the Cyber voices in this. It's interesting. Iconic. They're quirky. They're very, very hard to imitate on the playground, but it's not what I was expecting when I came into the story, put it that way. Yeah, I don't think Michael Gareth was expecting it either. I think he thought that he was going to use his voice, and he got a bit disappointed when he found out, well, actually, we're going to dub it. Sorry. And unlike James or unlike David Prowse being dubbed by James Earl Jones in Star Wars, Michael Kilgariff could legitimately have done that voice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, the other thing about the side controller, of course, is that he's got supposed to he's got a pulsating brain, or they certainly had back that seemed that there was umpteen issues. They had to replace batteries and this thing pulsing. And the tragic thing is you don't even see it on the screen. It cannot be seen that there's a thing pulsing in there. It's just a well, he's got a big head, really. <laughs> <laughs> with the visible brain case. Yeah. The Tomb of the Cybermen was transmitted September 1967 with Patrick Troughton as the Doctor, Fraser Hines as Jamie, and Deborah Watlin, of course, as Victoria Waterfield. And in the guest cast amongst them, we've got George Pastel, or Pastel, as Eric Klieg, who was in um, all sorts of things, The Mummy from Russia with Love. And I just watched the other day a, a random... Hammer film called The Maniac, and he popped up in that as a policeman. He was a police chief in that. You and I had been discussing this story over DM before, long before the recording date. So what I decided to you to do for you, Dave, is I went to the discontinuity guide. Okay. And I, I read the roots section for this story, and I watched two movies and one television episode that are all described as roots on Tomb of the Cybermen. So for your benefit, I have watched both the 1959 Hammer version of The Mummy and the 1964 Hammer follow-up, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. George Pastel, which is his stage name, I think his real last name was Pastelides, being of Greek and Cypriot origin. He is the bad guy in The Mummy. He has a terrific confrontation with Peter Cushing in the last reel. Great performance between two actors. And then he is the only returning cast member for Curse of the Mummy's Tomb playing a slightly different character, but this time he's playing a good guy rather than a bad guy. He gives really two strong performances in the Hammer movies. And then in From Russia with Love, which is the other thing that I've seen him in, it's not a huge part, but he's the subway, I shouldn't say subway, that's my New York City coming through, He plays the train conductor on the Orient Express, and he has a fairly visible part interacting with Sean Connery throughout the story. So 
the remarkable thing about him is he has essentially the exact same accent as Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he is not, as far as I can tell, Austrian. So when I listen to him speak, it's hard to tell where Arnold Schwarzenegger ends and George Pastel begins. Oh, he's a great actor. I mean, in the Maniac, he was a police chief, and he, again, he had a really great performance in that. He was um, putting together all the, well, obviously it was about a maniac. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> but, um, and he was putting it uh, all together, and uh, yeah, he's, and I, I think he's great in this. I really love his performance in this. He's, he's got some great lines. And it's very different from the performance that he's given in the three other movies of his that I've seen. So it isn't like he's even playing yeah. his stock and trade bad guy. This is a very different villain than the one he plays in the 1959 Mummy. Really good performances all around. We've got Aubrey Richards as Professor Parry, who was in I, Claudius. And it wouldn't say War 10, apparently, except he seems to be one of these actors that was just in everything back in the day. Cyril Shapps as Viner. Oh, Cyril Shapps, the king of nervous acting, I would call him. He's absolutely brilliant at doing that. <laughs> Another James Bond connection, he was in The Spy You Love Me. Yes, and of course, in three other Doctor Whos, this being the first of yeah. his four on-screen appearances. Yeah, he was in Porridge as well, I seem to remember. I can't remember who he played in it, but I do remember him popping up. Um, it's funny being in the States, because I do not have the same perspective on a lot of these cast members that you do. I have never seen a lot of these cast members in anything else. I vividly recall I, Claudius, made a big impression here in the States because we had Masterpiece Theater. So we have this cycle on PBS that imports these great British costume dramas and shows them over several weeks. My mother was and still is a huge PBS British costume drama devotee. So she was watching I, Claudius, as it came out, and she got the novel out of the library. I would have been about three, four, five years old. The novel terrified me because I found the cover very, very scary. And then Sesame Street did a version of I, Claudius with Cookie Monster in the late 70s called <laughs> Me, Claudius. So I've never actually seen the original I, Claudius, only because I have these very specific phobias of it from, from the 1970s. So I know that every actor in it was in Doctor Who at some point or other, but I've never actually yeah. seen it. I've never actually seen it either, to my shame. I should check it out. I've been seriously recommended it a few times. And yeah, as you say, every actor in it has been in Doctor Who. Everyone from Derek Jacobi to John Hurt to you name it. Brian Blessed. Kevin McNally. Goes. Yeah, Kevin McNally, yeah. Roy Stewart is Toberman, who I remember in another... So running theme here, James Bond, uh, he, he was in Live and Let Die, of course, is, uh, I think it was, was it Coral Jr. Or... It's funny because the Bond movies were shot out of order. So Quarrel is in two books. He's in Live and Let Die Coral first, Jr., and then yeah. later on he's in Doctor No, where he meets his end. But they mm -hmm. shot Doctor No first in 62. They have Joseph Kitzmiller playing Quarrel, and he dies when they went back and they did Live and Let Die 10 years later, at that point, they were still following the books whenever they could. Probably one of the last Bond movies where they actually followed the book. So they decided to make him Quarrel Jr. and they brought in a different actor. So yeah. he doesn't die in Live and Let Die, in spite of the title of the movie. But it's a small part. No. He doesn't say very much. And same with the two Doctor Who's. Not a very um, talkative actor. 
No, he's just driving a boat, really, and living let die and commenting on who lives up a hill. That's about, that's about all he does. We've got Shirley Cooklin as discussed as Kaftan, who I'd, I found out was in the, I've not seen it, but The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, which would have starred, um, of course, Ian Chester in himself. William Russell. William Russell, yeah. And she's been become more famous as a writer. Not read any of her stuff, but she became a big writer. I have not read any of her stuff either. Again, being an American, I have a very different cultural frame of reference, so I'm striking out a lot of these references here. <laughs> We've got George. I'm going to murder his name because I can't do pronunciations. I think it's Rubishek as Captain Hopper, who turned up in the Dirty Dozen, I believe. But again, I can't remember who he played in that. I don't recall him in the Dirty Dozen. I last saw that about 10 years ago. But he is probably best known for having a part in the original Star Wars, but as is very typical of George Lucas, he was dubbed, so it's not his actual voice. So the character he plays uh, in Star Wars does not have that phony John Wayne wannabe accent that George Rubichek supports <laughs> in this story to um, infamous results. Yeah, he's got quite a famous accent in this, to say the least. And of course, Michael Kilgariff as the Cyberman controller who Surprise, surprise, also turned up in a couple of James Bonds. Now, Bernard Holly also has a small part. He has a lot of Doctor yeah. Who bona fides, bona fide, bona fide, I'll also just say bona fides later on. But I don't think Bernard Holly was in any uh, James Bonds, so he's probably the one cast member that doesn't cross over. <laughs> yes. What was your initial thoughts when you first saw it? So you were saying earlier you saw it for the first time in 93? So... I joined RecArts Doctor Who, which was the Doctor Who bulletin board on Usenet, probably in 92, towards the beginning of my college career. And I was not aware that these VHS tapes were out there. And I was not aware that you could go to the store and buy, for example, the Hartnell years and watch the surviving bits of the Crusade or Celestial Toymaker. So these people on RecArts are talking about watching these orphan episodes, and I had no idea you could do that. I was on Rec Arts when it was announced that Tomb had been found in Hong Kong and was getting a VHS release. And probably beginning of 93, my college roommate and I hopped on a bus and went down to Baltimore's Inner Harbor, which was the big shopping district. And at that time, Suncoast Video was a big American VHS chain. They did not survive long past the DVD era, so they're long out of business. But at the time, anything that you needed video-wise, you would go to Suncoast Video. And we went to the sci-fi section, and there were four Doctor Who VHSs on the shelf. So I bought this, I bought Hartnell Years, I bought Troughton Years, and I bought Shada all on the same day. And at that point, each VHS was 1995 American. So I dropped $80 plus tax on Doctor Who VHS is on the same afternoon. And this is, of course, when I'm a starving college student skating by on student yeah. loans and the occasional bit of parental munificence. So I dropped a lot of money <laughs> on these Doctor Who tapes, and my roommate was aghast. But it was worth every penny because I watched those tapes over and over again. But yeah, I was watching this. I put it on the college dorm on a Sunday afternoon. And you have to understand, in 1992-93, we didn't all have our own televisions and VCRs. There was one TV in the dorm area, and there was one VCR player attached to it. 
and you had to wait your turn. So I was lucky enough to get in when nobody was there. And as soon as I put Tomb of the Cybermen on the big college dorm TV, everybody shows up. And within half an hour, you've got 30 guys, all 18, 19 years old, watching this movie, and they're all laughing their heads off at the special effects. And maybe the laughter wasn't unkind, but we were definitely watching it for very different purposes. I'm sitting there in rapt attention watching a story that I know is legendary, and they're just watching what they think is poorly made, low-budget British sci-fi, which to the naked eye is what it appears to be nowadays, but it certainly was not if you're watching it live in 67. Why are you laughing, guys? This is classic. (laughs) There was a backlash to the story after it came out. I don't know if you've been reading The New Adventures, but Justin Richards' first new adventure, Theater of War in 1994, it's a subplot about this long-running war between two civilizations, one of which is a very theatrical history. And there's an archaeological dig, and they're excavating this very famous theater from thousands of years earlier. Yeah. And they discover a machine that has recorded on it a very famous lost play. So they bring the device home to their home planet, and they have this very big premiere where they stage this play for the first time in thousands of years. And during the intermission, some of the characters are saying, this is not nearly as good as reputation has it. I think that is Justin Richards and I can't confirm this, I think that whole subplot is a direct commentary on the old guard fan reaction to the type, the Tomb of the Cybermen when it came out, that it wasn't as good as the memory had it, because when you're watching it as a kid, you're not noticing that the Cybermen is an empty costume on Kirby Wire, and you're not noticing that some of the acting is George Rubisek, um, comical. So, after it came out, there was this pushback that the story was not a classic because it didn't age very well. And I think we've all had to deal with that. But I've come full circle and watching it in sequence as part of my pilgrimage in 2020, 21. I watched all of Doctor Who in 13 months during lockdown. When you're well, watching it in sequence, it is the best produced Doctor Who story to date with incredible special effects for the era, given what's come before. So I am now firmly in the pro-tomb camp. I am against the pushback camp. And I think it's interesting to have Theater of War as a living document as to what we thought of Tomb of the Cybermen when it came back. But I think he's being unfair if he was, in fact, commenting on this story, which I'm sure he yeah, was. Yeah, I'm very pro-tomb as well. I mean, I, I've not read Theater of War, but I've heard the Big Finish um, adaptation of it. Uh, They've done, they done it on audio. Um, oh. And yeah, <laughs> it is certainly a reflection. I think Justin Richards uh, talking about Tomb of the Cybermen. I agree. Um, I mean, the first time I saw this story was I just started collecting the VHSs of Doctor Who in early '92. Um, obviously, the show had been off air a couple of years, and I got a tape of the Five Doctors from a friend of mine at the time, and I watched it umpteen times and I remembered oh this show Doctor Who that I remember watching growing up and and started collecting the VHSs and I don't can't remember quite what month this came out but my mum used to shop at Asda, the big Asda here in Edinburgh and one day I remember we went in and then my eyes immediately went to the because it was VHSs Doctor Who but this one in particular it's got silver writing on it which was different from the others and it said missing presumed dead and it was the first shouting I saw, I believe, um, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so atmospheric. 
And yeah, I, I, I just loved it. So you probably would have seen this before I saw it, but you saw it in a very different environment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I saw it in the, yeah, in my bedroom, uh, probably with a wee, t- wee colored television set and watched it. Yeah, I didn't have a, a viewing party, I'm afraid, no. Without t- two dozen other college boys laughing at your favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't have that, no. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Would you have read the novelization before you saw the recovered episodes? I did. I've not read the novelization before. I think this story's reputation owes at least as much to the novelization because the novelization does not have budget cuts. The novelization does not have empty costumes being tossed about on Kirby wires. <laughs> the novelization does not have the very uniquely dated 1960s choices of putting act- actors in blackface. And when they describe Toberman as a Turk in the novelization, I was picturing this bald, burly, white guy with a walrus mustache wearing a 19th century wrestling singlet. So I was not picturing Toberman as the racist character that Roy Stewart's character has been interpreted as being. Yeah. So when I saw the story, I was wrestling with my own memories of the novelization, which has exquisite a description of the sets and the tombs and everything is bigger and darker and scarier in the book. And even though Morris Barry does a great visual job in Lime Grove D, if you've read the book first, you're expecting much more cinematic big budget than what even Morris Barry could realistically give. So the novelization is probably the memory that most folks had of Tomb when they put on the video yeah. for the first time. That is probably another reason for the pushback. It's not as visual as the book. It's like they say, isn't it? It's never as good as the book, as they say about films and TV shows, because, of course, in your mind, you just imagine the tomb would be... But but as I say, I think this is great. Uh, But, yeah, your imagination can always make it much bigger than realistically they could have done it. But at the same time, when... George Pastel's character is standing in front of the big computer console. The console on the big energy dial is taller than he is, which is a great visual look, which Doctor Who wasn't doing a whole lot of in the mid-60s. So it's one of the more impressive sets you've gotten in sequence by the time this is made at the end of season four. So even though it doesn't look as well as it does in the book, it looks phenomenal compared to anything else Doctor Who had been doing up to that point in time. If you look at some of the computer console sets in the moon base or uh, faceless ones or underwater menace or 10th planet, this is a much more impressive yeah. computer console. So the story begins with the TARDIS still on Scarrow from the end of Evil of the Daleks. And you have this wonderful scene where they're introducing Victoria to this cavernous looking TARDIS, because of course it was filmed, at, I believe, at Ealing rather than in Lime Grove. And what really impressed me was that you see outside, like, flashes on the TARDIS, which obviously represents that Scarrow's still getting destroyed. And there's this wonderful scene where, of course, uh, they're sort of saying, right, this travels in time and space and so on. And Troughton's frowning and are saying, what are all these knobs and all of that? It's just a lovely little scene. 
the chemistry between Troughton and Watling and Fraser Hines is matched only by the chemistry you get when Debbie Watling leaves and Wendy Padbury takes her place. Yeah. But if you take any random moment where those three actors are on set together in any of their stories between this one and Fury, which we can now only see as an animation, the three of them just work together so well as a unit. So this scene is delightful to watch. Yeah, I thought Deborah Warren looked beautiful in this. I mean, she was such a beautiful looking woman. And Patrick Troughton saying, smooth, take off what a nerve and doing the frowning. <laughs> That's typical second doctor. And it goes completely then to Telos, where we get the titles over this wonderful looking landscape. I mean, I know in real life it was just a quarry somewhere, but and you've got this epic music over the top of it. And Toberman's just sitting at the top of the hill, eh, standing, sorry, at the top of the hill. It's a wonderful little opening just to set the scale of, right, this is this is going to be something, you know? You have the first two sequences all done on film, which is atypical for the era. So it's yeah. a great way of getting out of the studio. We get introduced to these brilliant characters. So who have we got? We've got Professor Parry, who's this in charge of this expedition to search for the last remains of the Cybermen on Telos. And he's just, you know, he's coming to do this sort of agitation with Klieg, who's in, who financed the whole thing. But he's, of course, got his own objective and why he's there. And then you've got Toberman, who's the servant. We'll get to him in a, in a bit because, of course, uh, he's not treated as perhaps he would be nowadays, to say the least. Um, you've got Viner, who's just nervous and fidgety all the time and just wants to leave. And you've got Kaftan, who is quite a horrible person as well. Um, I think it's a wonderful wee set of characters, though, you get in this. Well, they attempt to blow a hole in the mountain, it seems, and then they don't see anything. And then suddenly, oh, there's a, there's a couple of doors that have just appeared. Man, you just blew yourself a pair of doors. <laughs> yes. It's funny because when I was watching both The Mummy and Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, it's almost the same setup, which is probably why Discontinuity Guide lists them as an influence on this story. Because anytime you have an expedition, you have your unscrupulous financier, you have your femme fatale, you have your devoted socially awkward archaeologist, you usually have a family member of the archaeologist who stands in opposition, you have characters who are arguing, you have frayed nerves because you've been on this expedition for a long time. So all these characters in Tomb are archetypes, and perhaps it's a little too obvious who the villains are. There's really no surprises among the guest cast, but these are all one or two dimensional characters with very vivid and well-played dimension or dimension. And the Doctor and obviously the his companions appear and this whole group who have found these pair of doors hear the noise and go, oh, it sounds like an engine. And then suddenly they appear and think that they're a rival ex expedition that are trying to muscle in on what they're doing. So they've got the problem with the doors. And Kaftan says, £50 for anyone who wants to open the doors. That hasn't aged well, say £50. Eh, you've not got anyone doing that now. And especially if this is taking place in the 22nd or 23rd <laughs> century, it's probably worth about 75 cents now. 
And we have a group, first off, what is a couple of gruesome deaths in the story. So one of the workers, brave enough, goes up and gets electrocuted completely to kick things off. And the doors look really great uh, with the cyber motif, the head. I mean, there's always been the criticism over the years that, what, were the Cybermen that bothered with having, you know, like, a drawing of themselves all over the place? You know, it's, it, the motif is all over the place in the, in the tomb, isn't it? And that's the Egyptian influence again, because yeah. in the two Hammer movies, anytime yeah. you enter the tomb, there is a lot of pictorial art, which features heavily in the plot of both movies. Let me read you out the death scene from the novelization, which Jerry Davis wrote himself. There was an instant flash like lightning. The man's head jerked back. For a long moment, he remained head back as if looking at the sky. Then his hands opened, releasing his hold, and his body toppled backwards down the slope. And then later on, when the doctor inspects the corpse, the hands and the feet are charred. So yeah, very visual death. Yeah, it'd be fair in the TV version, you, you, he's got a gigantic sort of gruesome scar on his hand when he looks at it, doesn't he? Where he says, oh, this guy was electrocuted. Cyril Sharps, as we said earlier, is the king of nervous acting at this point. He's just like, oh, we've got to get away from here. This is dangerous. This is a deadly planet. <laughs> the, the, all of them saying um, he looks like an archaeologist, the doctor. Just because he's got a scruffy looking coat on with a handkerchief <laughs> in his pocket. Patrick Trowman's doctor is very mischievous. I mean, as I said, they have this little argument before that about, well, you, well you're a different exhibition, you know, like you're, you're muscling in on us. And eventually, of course, the professor says, well, they've got as much right to be here as us. And Patrick Trowman just sort of goes, well, that's settled then, right? Let's, let's just get on with it. So this guy gets killed. And then he's got a wee device, typical doctor that he's just happened to have the right device for him, to measure the voltage on the, the door. But poor Jamie, though, hasn't got enough muscle to open the door and says, I've not got much, I've not done much exercise. <laughs> yeah, this is where the first bit of Toberman gets, let, let's talk about Toberman. Because um, he says, the doctor says, are you afraid? No, he's not afraid. And he goes up and opens the door because he's the big strong man. But... Yeah, he's called a servant. He's a racial stereotype, let's be honest. Um, yeah, it's not a good look, is it? This is where you have to ask yourself a question if you're a Doctor Who fan of the classic yeah. era. Yeah. I am not exonerating the new series. The new series has many elements that I think are just as offensive. And mm -hmm. there's even less excuse because they're doing it in the modern day and not 50, 60 years ago. Agreed. If Tomb of the Cybermen is Doctor Who's version of a Hammer horror movie, and you look at the Hammer horror movies, racial stereotypes the were the stock in trade of Hammer, with yeah. the very fact that George pa now George Pastel is Mediterranean, he's going to have a certain complexion, not dissimilar to my own, but he's... I want to say that George Pastel is blacked up for his role in the first Mummy movie where he's playing this untrustworthy Egyptian antiquities expert. And then similarly, he plays a slightly more sympathetic character in Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, but there's also a twist in the last reel. Non-British characters in these type of movies are not treated well or sympathetically. They're always... No, they're usually the villain, aren't they? They're usually the villain. And Doctor Who is doing the same thing here, not only with Toberman, but also with Captain, whose character is black up, and she's described as Middle Eastern in the novelization. Mm -hmm. And of course, 
Klieg as well has a non-English accent, and he turns out to be the bad guy. It's remarkable that George Rubischek, playing an American, is portrayed halfway sympathetically. But this is just something that was being done all yeah. across the media in 1967, and it's unfortunate that Tomb of the Cybermen is singing out of the same hymnal. But you can't just scapegoat it. You can't just say, oh, this is the one Doctor Who story that's bad and we have to get rid of it. Oh, no, no, all no, no, the no. Stories were, all the stories were doing this. All of them. Oh, t- Talons of Wayne Cheyenne, when I get to that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's, I totally agree with you. It's a, just a, it's like a snapshot in time of what it was like back then and what they did. It's not correct, but it's what they did. And that's, I mean, nowadays you've got the, um, like, warnings on all these old TV things on Netflix and everything saying you might be offended if you see it. And I get it, but, you know, it was a product of the time. And I'm not going to not watch Tomb of the Cybermen because Toberman turns up, you know, it's, it, you've just got to accept that, that that was something that they just did back then, however right or wrong it was. I think Marco Polo, much more yeah, expensive in places, Abominable yeah. Snowman, was always one of my favorites because of the book, but when I finally watched Abominable Snowman as part of my pilgrimage, it became it was the probably the story that suffered the worst in my estimation because the racial stereotyping and the pernicious attitudes of the two men who wrote Abominable Snowman really, really put a huge damper on the story to the point that I haven't even watched the animated version yet because I was so disappointed by the reconstruction and the surviving live action. So right. Tomb of the Cybermen is not even as bad as its contemporaries, put it that way. <laughs> so my wife got me this 500-year diary from Barnes & Noble back when Barnes & Noble was full of Doctor Who merchandise. So for really? 2013, when I started my blog, which later became my, my Targets podcast, I took I was watching one story a night, and I took a half a page of notes for every story between Unearthly Child and... Um, I finally gave up, I think, in the middle of Enemy of the World. That's as far as I go. Okay. But I was taking very specific notes in very tiny handwriting 10 years ago when I had much better vision than I do now. So I've got <laughs> two pages of notes on Tomb of the Cybermen, and I want to just go through those because I have a lot of very specific comments in here. Then I watched this between January 4th and January 7th, 2014. So these are almost 10-year-old notes, but they're still pretty good. Anyway, let's get back to it. So the doors are open, and... Everyone goes in, and you get this wonderful bit where Jamie and uh, the Doctor join hands and persuade Victoria to come in, which was on the recording, but Morris Barry didn't know because he was so serious. They thought, we'll just prank him and put it in, and he can't take it out. And they all go in, and I think the set looks fantastic, this chamber. It's really a testament to Morris Barry's visual flair. And the last thing he did on Doctor Who, unfortunately, is the Dominator. So he kind of leaves a bitter <laughs> aftertaste in most people's mouths. Hi, Fraser. But <laughs> you start off with a ton of film. You have the TARDIS interior on film. You have the location quarry. You have the entrance to the tomb is in studio, but it's got practical electrocuting doors. And then you walk in, even though you're in Lime Grove D, the same, this is the same studio where Waris Hussein made the actors run in place while he was thwacking them with branches to simulate running through a jungle. Waris Hussein looks at the studio and says, we're going to have to really, really pretend that the studio is not as small as it is. Morris Barry, on the other hand, says, this is great. We're going to turn this into a huge, immense single set with these enormous 
enormous props and painting on the wall. So Morris Barry is not intimidated by the studio space at all. Really makes the most of the story visually. Yeah, so you've got a set of controls with this big clock-looking thing above it, and then you've got the large hatch, which they believe is obviously where the tombs are. And this is uh, the first bit where... This happens quite a bit in the episodes where the Doctor helps out Klieg, really, but doesn't tell him. So he's, he's, he's almost like just giving him hints, like, you know, well, there's symbolic logic. All oh, right, okay. Um, I mean, you could ask, I suppose, why does he help him? But it's because the doctor wants to know what's going on as well. He knows that the Cybermen are there. So it's in his interest to get down there as well and find out what's going on. He doesn't want them to, he doesn't want these amateurs, as it were, to go down and wake them up and <laughs> get into trouble, you know. You could argue that the doctor's actions in this story get a lot of people killed. Yes, it does. By the end of the day, the only surviving member of the archaeological side of the expedition is Professor Parry. You could argue that if the doctor hadn't been there, the only person who would have died was the one crewman who got electrocuted after blowing himself a pair of doors. You could argue that without the doctor, nobody else would have been able to open yeah. the tombs, activate the target room, activate the revitalizing chamber. But at the same time, Klieg is a brilliant character in his own right. He would eventually have figured it out. Yeah. Perhaps they all die. Perhaps the Cybermen escape the tombs, take over the orbiter, go back to Earth, and wipe out the Earth's population. Yeah. So the doctor yeah. takes a calculated risk and it gets a lot of people killed. But the worst case scenario, if the doctor isn't there, could have been the end of humanity as we know it. So I come on the That's doctor's true. side on this, uh, if it's a debate. I think that he does the right thing, even though it results in a few deaths. It was surprising when, of course, they're like, well, there's this place and the hatch. And then the doctor says, well, there's these other two doors. And they all seem surprised. And it's like, well, you didn't see that there was a, there was, that looks like a door to me. you know. <laughs> and what struck to me at this point as well is that Victoria seems to get a lot of bad rap for just being there and screaming in her time on the show. But she stands up to Kafton quite a few times in this and has a bit of sass. The, the first bit here is when she says to her, I can handle myself, thank you. I mean, she's not going to be dictated by Kaftan. But so she, she actually, in watching it the other day, she's much more independent than she gets credit for, I think. Victor Pemberton put a lot into Victoria, right? Because he also is uncredited script editor on Abominable Snowman. There's one really good... Yeah conversation between Victoria and Tanmi, one of the monk characters, who, by the way, happened to be played by Victor Pemberton's partner. So nepotism yeah. is all over this season of Doctor Who. Um, and then Victor Pemberton writes her farewell story, um, Fury from the Deep. So he puts the most yeah. into Victoria, and he treats her as a real character, not just what Elizabeth Sandifer rather unfairly describes in her works as a quote-unquote, peril monkey. Mm -hmm. But one of the other influences that Discontinuity Guide found for this story is the Avengers episode, The House That Jack Built, which is about a automated house that has been built as a death trap for Emma Peel. Emma Peel spends much of that story going around the house with her little gun drawn. Victoria in this story is shown to be a crack shot with a pistol and destroys a <laughs> tiny <laughs> cybermat yeah 
even though you could argue that being from 1866, you might not have been able to do that. So, yeah, I think Victoria comes across very well throughout her entire time on the show, and she's misunderstood because of the screams. But I think the production team, especially Victor Pemberton, put a lot of effort into making her a well-rounded, relatable, sympathetic, and exciting character. Yeah, there's a couple of stories, I'll be honest. Um, I've not watched them for a while, where I did think that Victoria was sort of a bit of a whiner, really, and just thought, oh, no, here she goes again, frightened of everything. But in this, she was... She was not that at all. She was um, really uh, well written, I thought, in this. So we have the the doctor uses the, he explains about symbolic logic, an orgy, he calls it. And that's and so, a real thing. I looked it up. That is a real that thing. That is a real thing, yeah. And he opens the doors and they all split up. So some of them go into one room, the others go into another room, while the doctor, Parry and Cleeg decide to stay in the main chamber and try and figure out how to open the hatch. So Jamie and Hayden go through to this, what turns out later on to be a weapons testing chamber. And yeah, I, the one question I asked with this is, you know, what are these light things about? What were they for? I mean, was it visual testing for the Cybermen? I think there's a reference to um, <clears throat> subliminal vision. I'm not quite sure how that works in with the Cybermen who have computer programmed brains. But if you watch that Avengers episode, the house that Jack built, there is a room in that house which is almost identical to the weapons testing room. So I'm wondering if that was not an influence on the designer, if not the uh, writer and producer. Yeah, I, I get the, the whole thing, though, that like the Cyberman comes out later and, and, it's a, and the gun comes out. But it's just like these all these other buttons do like these patterns on the wall, and it's almost like... What, what's that about? What was that? What, what was the Cyberman name with us? <laughs> Is it psychedelic sort of? I, I don't know. It just seemed like a waste of time. If this had been a six-part story instead of four, they might have explained <laughs> a little better. But then, at the same time, if it was a six-part story, Phantom would have said, "Oh, it's two episodes too long." So, I think I would I just, glad we've had six episodes of this. I think this story is really good. So, I would have taken another two episodes too. Yeah, the novelization doesn't explain it that much better, so I really can't tell you what it was there for. Other than that, it must have been really cool to stand in that room where everything is painted in color and look at those lights go by if you're oh, in the yeah. studio. So the Doctor, Cleek and Parry are in the main chamber trying to get the hatch open, and I love how the Doctor and Cleek just have the, the Doctor just winds Cleek up the whole story, saying, like, I've got my own archaeological uh, method. Oh, and what's that? I keep my eyes open and my mouth shut. Uh -huh, yeah, that's right. And I love to see the experts at work. And he's just, he's loving this. He's really enjoying this. Um, in fact, in the novelization, Jerry Davis makes that a chapter cliffhanger. That's how chapter four ends. Page 35, Klieg glared at the doctor. He went over to the control panel and stared at the symbols. I always love to watch an expert at work, said the doctor, smiling innocently. And that's how the chapter ends. That's a great chapter ending. And in the TV show, it's a, it's a fade to black. It's a, it's a break at that point. Yeah, Cleek um, tries to figure out how to open this. And so he does a couple of buttons, and then the room actually shakes. And the doctor says, you know, like, oh, why couldn't you have just left it alone? Uh, we'll better see how the others are. But none of the others even react to the fact that the whole place was rocking and, and shaking like an earthquake you know, a minute earlier. However, in the next room over, the revitalizing room, Victoria has unwisely stepped into the revitalizing chamber. Yes. Captain shuts the door on her, 
And then she happens to be standing in this chamber when the lights go on, then it reactivates the power charge and it looks as if Victoria is getting zapped. So that inadvertently puts her in jeopardy. Yeah, well, I was wondering what was Kaf done? What was her sort of objective here? I mean, if it was to kill Victoria or put her out the way. I mean, I mean, I know that they said, right, but right, you watch Victoria, right? Tobin will look after the Scots boy, even though he's not in the same room as him, but that's another thing. Um, huh. But, yeah, I mean, is she just trying to kill Victoria here? That's the implication. But It's just part of the I, villainy. They, I mean, in, in part two, we'll get to it, Klieg murders Viner. So they had no attachment to the rest of the expedition. They were disposable. Yeah. Whether they were going to be given over to the Cybermen to be converted or killed, Catherine and Klieg didn't care if any of these other people lived or died. And then with Victoria potentially being part of a rival expedition, Catherine is going to want her out of the picture anyway. That's just a way of establishing her villainy early on. Like I said, they're not trying to hide who the bad guys are, are they? No, definitely not. I mean, and she just sort of goes to the controls. Like, she doesn't even know what she's doing, but she doesn't care. She's just going to, like, ah, well, I'll just use this lever, and if it kills her, great. <laughs> I was describing her in my diary, Victoria, as plucky, determined, and reckless. <laughs> so that's her to a I team. agree with that. I'd agree with that. Back to Jamie and in the other room. So they've tried all the buttons and they're nearly getting hypnotized. In fact, Jamie does sort of get hypnotized at one point. I don't want to take my eyes off it and all that. And then they've got one button left and they press the button. And of course, the cliffhanger is that a Cyberman comes out. Everyone comes into the room and says, oh, why are you touching the controls, Jamie? And unfortunately, Peter Hayden is shot and dies. And the Cyberman that's in the room, if the camera zooms in on the eyes. And this happens on page 54 of the book. It takes Jerry Davis a very long time in the book to get to the first cliffhanger. <laughs> 54 pages. As he spoke, the far wall seemed to lose its light and grew dark. They saw it was not a wall. It was doors silently gliding open. Out of the blackness loomed a huge figure a silvery apparition with gigantic limbs and a massive helmet for a face. Victoria screamed. Behind her, Viner, who had just entered the room, stopped aghast, his mouth open. The silver <laughs> figure with the blank face raised its metal fist, and in its fist was something like a gun, black and menacing. Every human stood there, mesmerized with fear. The Cyberman went on raising his gun slowly, slowly. He was pointing at them, and they could see the dark hole of the barrel. That is not bless him, anything like what Morris Barry no. is able to give us on television. No, he raised his gun. It said there. So when I had read this book in the mid to late 80s, I was conditioned to expect an actual Cyberman stepping out of the wall, whereas on TV it is very clearly an empty costume sliding along too fast on the overhead gate. Episode 2. So you get a recap. And the doctor knows that the Cyberman didn't kill Hayden as he was shot in the back. So Jamie repeats the sequence that he did. And the Cyberman comes out again, and a gun comes out the back and shoots the... It wobbles, unfortunately, the wall, but hey. <laughs> um, it's the 60s. And shoots the, the Cyberman, who obviously is a dummy. It's a weapons test room. It's funny how, though, this time the gun doesn't go back in the wall or the Cyberman doesn't go away. You know, that's... Convenient for the doctor to then tell us everything that's going on. <laughs> I love Viner. It's alive. We've got to leave.
that's that's what we that's what my, that's what my people call nebishy acting. He's just playing this completely nervous, hapless, hapless figure. He's the best in the business. He 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 just does nervous acting so well. Um, and the doctor identifies the Victoria scene, which she thinks is a mollusk on the floor, and he says it's a cybermat. But there's nothing in his 500-year-old diary to say that. Well, it's dangerous. Leave it alone. He just sort of goes, just yeah, just leave it, which might have saved some problems. Well, it's Chekhov's gun coming out of the wall because that gun becomes important in episode four. And then it's also Chekhov's Cybermat because the Cybermat become important in episodes three and four as well. So this yeah. is just the scriptwriter setting the stage for future havoc. Because two guys have died, Parry gets everyone back into the main chamber and says, look, I'm going to abandon this. Two people have died. I've had enough. Despite Klieg and Cole, of course, like just about steam coming out his ears. You can't do this. But then... Captain Hopper comes in and says, well, sorry, you're not going anywhere because somebody sabotaged the rocket, which we know as the viewers is because Tolman was told to fix it. Well, Dave, he, you're not giving George Rubishek enough credit. He didn't say someone has sabotaged the Hopper. What he says is some character has balled up the lot. <laughs> <laughs> Every single line of dialogue that he has given is horrible. And I'm just going to drop it now because we'll get to it in a few minutes. Well, it's not exactly Peaches back on the ship. Yes, he's very, he's certainly written as a stereotypical high energy American. That, that's... He's, he's playing John Wayne. He's playing John yes. Wayne only yes. without the, without the build or the, or, or the, uh... he's a very young actor at this point, George Rubishek. His face doesn't really quite merit the John Wayne acting. Crummy planet is another phrase. I think one of them comes out way later <laughs> on as well. It's... I was going to say, that, again, the script is not trying to hide the villainy. They're not trying to hide that Toberman is responsible. The doctor figures it out right away. And Captain is the one who put him up to it. She doesn't want to leave. She sabotages the ship to buy Klieg more time to open the hatch and release the Cybermen. Then the script doesn't I'm, even try to hide it. I'm convinced that Peter Falk, as Columbo, must have either... He watched Doctor Who or the scriptwriters of Columbo watched it because it's literally... The second Doctor is Columbo. I mean, he's, he basically goes up to them and says, oh, he's got very strong hands, doesn't he, that could do a lot of damage. He's planting the seeds like Columbo does to make them think, well, they're on, he's on to us. And he's very Columbo in terms of, like, he, you think he's the dumb man in the room that's a bit of a clown, but underneath that, he's the most intelligent person in the room. And this is probably the Troughton story that does it best. I know you've already covered Underwater Menace. I heard that recently. And that was early days for Troughton when they were still doing a lot of costumes and funny accents because they weren't quite sure who he was yet. Mm -hmm. Then comes the moon base and the modern Troughton is born in the moon base, the clown who's really doing something important and serious under the surface. And all of a sudden, once or twice an episode, he will drop the act and get serious and everybody quiets down and listens to him. So he is at his peak in Tomb of the Spider-Man. And then by the time we get to season six, he gets a little silly again. And that's how most of us discovered Trout through season six on PBS. So that's why we didn't have a great impression of him in the 80s. But in this story, boy, he is glorious. Time passes um, with the site. What Morris Barry does is just get the cyber motif and then just films it with two shots to sort of signify the passing of time, which I thought was a really clever idea. I describe it in my diary as a meaningful zoom and crossfade. Yeah, it's really well done. Just a simple but effective effect. 
And another wee walking from the doctor to Klieg again. I think your logic is wearing a bit thin. <laughs> because Klieg, of course, says, right, I've done it. I've got, I've got a solution. And it doesn't work. And then the doctor presses a button, as we know, to kind of help him along. And he manages to, in his mind, open the whole tomb. And the hatch opens, and it's time to go downstairs. Yes. And see what's going on below decks. Yeah, so and they this all go is where down the into... doctor puts Victoria to work to watch Captain, which Victoria doesn't do. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, this bit, I mean, he's basically saying, can you watch this woman who's tried to kill you before? Essentially. <laughs> you know this woman who tried to kill you and put you in the revitalizer and do horrible things to you earlier on? Can you just watch over her for a minute? Because I'd, I'd rather you done it rather than me, because I'm going to go down into the tomb. <laughs> and if she's if she, if she's going to pass you a drink, do not eat or drink anything she gives you. What's the first thing Victoria does? The other thing, I mean, that's a lovely bit where she gets she asks for what is the food available, and she says chicken, and then she's given the block and just goes, "Oh, I'm not very hungry now." <laughs> she's like, "What is this?" But yeah, she's so stupid. She turns her back on her to look down into the tomb, allowing Kaftan to put something in her drink. It's like, "Oh, come on." Yeah, that's a plot contrivance. If Victoria was really on the ball, then Captain never gets to close the doors and never gets to lock them below. So that's just the requirements of the script, forcing Victoria to be stupid for 30 seconds. She has a pretty pathetic passing out, I thought, where she's sort of like, I feel so sleepy and then just sort of goes, oh. <laughs> and of course, Kaftan then closes the hatch. Which panics everyone. I mean, poor Vinor is, is just about having a heart attack at that point. That's the hatch. Oh my God. This um, is where Viner proves his worth because he immediately deactivates the tombs and is about to open the hatch and go back upstairs. And this is where Viner shows his nerve. And of course, he gets killed for his troubles. Yeah, poor Viner gets killed because Klieke tries to give them some sort of nonsense about this is, the, I've discovered the mechanism, not for the tombs here. That we've found and they and it looks like a honeycomb and looks great but it's for the hatch so i'm just going to do and the doctor knows because he does this he does a look to him as if to say aye okay right if it is for the opening device and yeah viner it's not he reactivates the tombs and viner bless him says no this is what they're moving what these cybermen are moving no no i'm, I'm we can't have this and gets shot because he tries to interfere so he's bit the bullet quite early on and somebody complains about the cold, and Klieg says, unless we find some way to warm things up. So again, not really hiding his ability. <laughs> and the ice is melting. It's that clip that was on the, I think it came out before Tomb of the Cybermen was on VHS, the Cybermen early years, where you saw the clip of that. And it was like, the ice is melting. Look behind you. And this whole thing with Tombs coming to life, I mean, that is just absolutely classic, magical stuff. Right? You have the time-lapse film of the ice melting. And then what you think is going to be a simple model shot, it's actually a full-size four-level or five-level tomb. And there's actors on each level. And the actors in Cyberman costumes with limited mobility and vision climb down the ladders. So this is actually probably a 40-foot-high structure that the actors are climbing down. And it leads to this incredible moment near the cliffhanger where you have two lines of Cybermen, very, very tall actors in boots, 
walking past the very short actors of whom Patrick Troughton is one of the tallest cast members. And the Cybermen are about twice the height of Aubrey Richards. This is phenomenal. You have to sit back and applaud. And again, it doesn't look perhaps great today, but this is about as visually graphic as Doctor Who is getting in the first four seasons of production. It's incredible. I think it looks absolutely superb um, still to this day. I mean, you can definitely see why that was a memory that people that saw in first transmission remember the Cybermen coming out tombs. It's just one of those iconic moments. And for those actors coming down, as you say, uh, those little step things at the side, that must have been terrifying. They couldn't see where they are, as you're saying. Could easily have, on the recording, have slipped or fell or anything. Fallen down 20 feet, and that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the end of it. I, I love Cleeg's line where he's obviously, like, as you say, he, he's not masking his villainy, and he says, it would be such a pity to miss it. <laughs> he just... Literally, the camera just says it would be a pity to miss the the they're waking it up. And he, um, is, he is relishing. He is relishing. Oh, he, I love it. I love it. I think the Cybermen look superb in this. I mean, I, what's your thoughts about what? Are they better looking than the Invasion ones, or are they? What's your thoughts on the looks of the Cybermen in this one? Well, this comes back to Jason's personal baggage. My first yeah. Cyberman glimpse was the Five Doctors. But my first proper Cyberman story, my first full Cyberman story in the wild is Revenge of the Cybermen, which I would have seen about a month after Five Doctors. <laughs> and that revenge is the same as the invasion costume, which is pictured on the front cover of the novelization. Because when this mm-hmm. novelization reprint cover came out, they were using whatever the contemporary Cybermen were at the time, which was the revenge model with these very huge, massive earphones. So for me, this is the default Cyberman, the revenge Cyberman, which sounds like Christopher Robbie. So this is what <laughs> I picture as a Cyberman. So when the, when the moon-based Cybermen come out of the tomb, I was faintly disappointed. But then they're tall, they're tall. Then they open up the hatch and the controller comes out and he's even taller and he's not wearing a chest unit and he has this huge brain case. I think they look great. It's a pity it's hard to understand what they're saying, but they look, they look great. Really, I, I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think their voices are pretty good in this. Um, it's, I guess it's um, just personal preference, but I, I, I didn't think there was a problem hearing what they were saying. David I mean, you Banks, have the when I watched Doctor Who. So. <laughs> when David Banks was playing the cyber leader, he got to use his own voice, slightly modulated. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you know it, but in 1993, David Banks then writes his own new adventure, Iceberg. Yeah, Iceberg, yeah. Which remarkably is not an Earthshock era Cyberman story, but it builds on 10th Planet and it builds on the invasion. And it goes back to Snowcap Tracking Station in the year 2006, 20 years after the events of 10th Planet. And General Cutler's daughter is now in charge of the base. And there's a sequence of very much like Tomb where they go below and there's a cyber conversion theater and there's cyber mats again. I'm not quite sure that David Banks didn't pitch that whole book just as a way of making fun of the voices in the story. There's a scene where a character is abducted in the book and wakes up and a cyberman is talking about examination of human intruder. But because they're speaking in this buzzy computerized voice, a la tomb of the Cybermen, the person thinks that what the Cybermen is saying is eggs, ham, and bacon of you, man, in true door. 
which is very funny. So David Banks canonizes that nobody can understand what these Cybermen are saying. I've not read the book. I'll have to check that out sometime. And I haven't even spoiled it for you, but it's basically the Cybermen meets the Wizard of Oz. It's a really underrated book. Oh, okay. That sounds, uh, that's a pitch. (laughs) Cybermen meet Wizard of Oz. The cyber theme that plays over them waking up, it's the iconic cyber theme, isn't it? It's just great. My friend Ross over on the Gallifrey's Most Wanted podcast uses that as one of his theme tunes. And it, okay. shows, up, it shows up again and again in the 60s. It also is used as the theme for the Yeti in Web of Fear. The first time you hear Space Adventure in part one of this story is the first time the word Cyberman is mentioned. So yeah. they're being very careful with the soundtrack. And you can just, you can hear it. If you look at a picture of the part two cliffhanger, you can hear Space Adventure in your head. That's how well it fits the cliffhanger. Victoria is woken by the Cybermat bleeping inside her bag now. Um, so, yeah, this is where Kaftan pulls a gun on her because she then tries to open the hatch and she finds out, why did you drug me? What, why are they still down there? What's going on? And she fools... Well, she doesn't fool Kaftan because she just says the truth. She says, it's behind you. And Kaftan does the, you're not, I'm not falling for that. Sees it on her shoulder and then she sort of faints or something because she's seen a cyber mat on her shoulder. And Victoria's obviously a crack shot, even though she's probably never handled a gun in her life. Well, again, she's playing Emma Peel rather than Victoria Waterfield. I love her panic when she then sort of, she doesn't know what to do. So she sort of goes from one side of the room to the other goes to the other side of the room again and then just goes, Captain Hopper, and runs out. It's interesting in part three because she shrieks at a Cybermat, which makes you roll your, roll, roll your eyes. But then when she gets Hopper and Callum, she's very feisty and sarcastic with them. So that may be a case of uh, Deborah Watling trying to put some competence in the lines. So she plays Victoria yeah. at both extremes in the same story, but she makes it work. That's true, yeah. The cliffhanger then, which I think is a god-tier Doctor Who cliffhanger. We have the yeah, cyber there you controller. go. Guess it, god-tier. That's it. That's exactly the word I would use. The cyber controller emerges from his tomb. So he seems to have, it looks like he's been sort of in a crouching position for, for hundreds of years or whatever. And then he comes out, and of course, they, I love how they do the, the wee salute to him, all mm-hmm. the cybermen. And they have a close-up of his face, and he's got snow on his face, and it's just this blank face, which is brilliant. And, of course, he has the, the line, you shall be like us after Cleek tries to talk to him, but he just decides, I'm just going to crush your hand instead. And covered in ice, yeah. Yeah. You shall so, be like us. You so will here's be my like note. Us. The tomb set is 29 feet tall. Wow. 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 <laughs> it's that, it's, it's that, uh, that astounding. So yeah, coming on to part three, the sound effects man is going crazy. The doctor and Jamie are trying to escape from the Cybermen in the tombs. And there's this, I describe it in my diary as a cacophonous medley of cyber sounds. There is a lot of cyber sounds in this episode, yeah. So the cyber controller explains that the tomb is a trap to get superior intellects in, which 
I think it's a brilliant plan by the Cybermen. I mean, that's very devious. You know, we'll create this trap so that only people who are really intelligent and we want to use are going to find their way in here. The bad news, of course, would be that they would just be sitting there for millions and millions of years and nobody ever visits. But it's likely probably folk would because, of course, they're infinite, certainly. The, the Cybermen of uh, the Cyber Wars and so on, if we want to get the big finish, and it's very convoluted. But... Well, I think it's a great one. <laughs> it speaks to this very 19th century British conquering archaeologist mentality, which comes right out of the horror movies. If there is a tomb, an intrepid British archaeologist and his rich paymaster are going to come along and open it. One of the plot strands in the 1959 mummy is that Christopher Lee's character, who plays the mummy, is walled up alive in the tomb for 3,000 years, waiting for somebody to break into the tomb so he can enact his revenge. <laughs> so again, that's that's straight up hammer horror. Yeah. <laughs> the Cybermen assume that all British explorers are going to want to pillage the tomb, which, which of course <laughs> they do. And the Cybermen recognize the Doctor from the moon base, so we get a sort of little bit of continuity where they talk about, we recognize you from the moon base, and he finds out why they tried to conquer the moon base because of course they were running out of energy they were they were pretty much dead thanks to him obviously in the 10th planet ruining their idea of well we're just going to use energy from the earth no you're not because the doctor's going to interfere he huh. looks quite fetching throughout in his cloak I, I thought at this point he's got this cloak on it and we never really see it again and also the 500-year diary goes away. It's never seen again yeah. after episode two of the story. So I assume he left it in the tombs. So Victoria brings Hopper and Callum from the rocket. Um, and again, she shows some real sass because, of course, they just call her Vic, which annoys her big style. And <laughs> when they say, right, oh, what do you think's the, the control for the hatch? Oh, it's something down there. She thinks. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is interesting that even though it requires Kleeg's mathematician brotherhood of logician skills to open the hatch, Callum is able to open the hatch just by tracing the wires. Yeah, I, I wrote that down, yeah. I, I mean, he managed to just break open the controls. That would have saved a hell of a lot of time to everyone. You could have just found the click for the, the, you know, the front of the machine, taken it off, and then just, oh, there's a wire there, okay. That's good old Yankee know-how. These American astronauts saving the day. Vicky does a very good scream when she's trying to fool Kaftan because Kaftan's woken up and got the gun again. But they get it back off her because she screams and it, for quite foreboding, I thought, for her screaming later on in the likes of Fury from the Deep. So they decide to go down into the tomb, Callum and Hopper. And he says, what are in these bombs? And he says, smoke. What the hell have they got smoke bombs for? That's a good point. I mean, this is not the Earth military or Starfleet. This is a private captain who leases out his ship to explorers. So he probably brings some basic defensive weapons, considering that they might run into hostile natives of the kind that are always showing up in these hammer horror (laughs) Egyptology movies. That probably is the answer right there. Also, Morris Barry probably really wanted to play with smoke bombs in the studio. <laughs> yes. 
So they go down and use these smoke bombs, and this, I love how the Cybermen are completely spooked by this. They sit, sort of just sort of do some weird sort of dancing, as if to say, right, there's smoke on the floor, what, what's this? What do we do at this point? Um, <laughs> and so everyone makes their escape, well, most people. And I love the fact that the Doctor is legitimately going to be taken. So he comes up the hatch steps, and a Cyberman gets him, and then Victoria actually takes, I think it's a flask, and tries to hit the Cyberman to get off the doctor and then it starts to try and take her. Yes. And the, the catch then comes down, which again shows some that she's not like the person who's just in the corner screaming and being a bit pathetic. She actually tackles a Cyberman. And it is brought up in the novelization as well. Victoria looked around in desperation, page 101. There must be something she could use. The coffee flask, exclamation point. She ran over to it, picked it up, and threw it at the Cyberman. The vacuum exploded on the Cyberman's head. He <laughs> let go of the doctor, and quickly Hopper and Jamie dragged him to safety. But of course, a few paragraphs earlier, Victoria wrung her hands and looked helplessly down the hatch as the doctor scrambled up the gigantic rungs. Yeah. So on the same page, she's pathetic and resourceful at the same time. When the Cyberman comes down the steps, I notice that there's a rip in his cyber suit, which was a shame. <laughs> I love how Cleek is then shitting himself. You see Cleek like hiding because the Cybermen are go and have a wee conference and say, right, what are we going to do? Because they've closed the hatch. And then he's at the top of the steps, chewing on his thumb, practically, knocking on the on the catch. Get me out of here. Um begs one of the questions that I wrote in my diary. If Cleek wants to awaken and work with the Cybermen, why is he so afraid of being converted? I figure that's all he wants. <laughs> but it also shows you the problem. Well, he's not like converted. He's wanting to control them rather than being converted himself. True. But it's an interesting point about the pacing of the story. The discontinuity guide says that the first two episodes are iconic. They, re, they reinvent Doctor Who. But then as soon as the Cybermen come out of the tombs, they go right back inside again. And this bit that I wrote you, read you from the beginning of part three is on page 101 of the book. The book ends on page 141. So two-thirds of the book is only covering half the story, which means there's a lot left to talk about when you're adapting parts three and four for the novelization. Yeah. Much less interesting story-wise. Toberman's still down there as well, isn't he? So he gets, I mean, a Cyberman sort of body slams him, really. Rather, I mean, rather than, they try and electrocute, and electrocute him later, but they have sort of a fight, I seem to remember, and then he sort of like gets him above his head and you see the Kirby wire, the famous infamous Kirby wire. And then body slams him on the So It's like, okay, could you not have sort of just, I don't know, knocked him out? You know, besides a wrestling move on Tober. In all fairness, if you're watching this on a 13-inch television on 405 live you wouldn't have seen the Kirby Wire. Yeah. You wouldn't have seen the Kirby Wire. Literally wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, they test it. They bring out the Cybermats and test them on Toberman. So poor Toberman's brainwaves are basically fried by these cybermats because they're they've they're not had any use for years and they put them on the sort of grating don't they and, and it goes up they go up the grating to go and terrorize everyone up above logically there's not much reason to be afraid of the cybermats um but it's just a pretty blatant merchandising attempt that's all it is it sort of takes you out of the story a little bit yeah all, all we get told isn't it is that they are they attack brainwaves so they'll just Fry your brain, essentially. 
but they don't really. Well, I guess they maybe they're part of the process of hypnotizing uh, Toberman and turning him into a Fiberman uh, servant, for want of a yeah. better word. Next, we have the most probably the most famous scene in the story, if it isn't the Cyberman waking up, is this scene between the Doctor and Victoria about family, which is really well played. Victoria saying that the doctor's so old that he would have had he needed a lot of sleep because he asks why did she not wake me up? It was my shift. And the doctor is four hundred and fifty years old, and this is where he has that famous dialogue about his family sleeping in his mind. Yeah. Well, they talk about obviously our father, and yeah, it's just a really nice scene. That- Victor Pemberton was really interested in this relationship and character-based drama. We see it again in his one scene in Abominable Snowmen, and we see lots of it in Fury from the Deep, which is the one story that he wrote from start to finish. The other writers were doing action-adventure, but he was more interested in who these people are and what they're going through emotionally as they're having these adventures. So it's almost unique in, 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 in the 60s to have these kind of scenes you get a lot of it in the very beginning with Ian and Barbara, but once Ian and Barbara are off the show, you get a lot less of it, especially when you're going through seven companions in season three, and people are coming in and out so fast you can't keep up. Mm-hmm. Victor Pemberton is the first writer in a long time to say, let's think about who these characters are rather than just giving them random lines. It's just a lovely scene where it's taking out the main action almost. It's completely separate from the rest of the story. They just have this chat for a minute it's it's really what we've seen but it's at and, the end of the episode and leads right into the cliffhanger so you have this interesting yeah. swing where you go from a really heart-to-heart moment and then all of a sudden boom here are the cybermats we're in danger again yeah poor victoria then she goes to sleep and then literally 30 seconds later a cybermat hits the doctor's leg and he says to victoria wake up and <laughs> she doesn't get any sleep at all oh. um and we've got this Cyberman attack, and Troughton's great in this, I think, because he's commanding, he's clever, he's suspenseful, he's saying, and he gets the idea to have the electric wire thing to fry the Cyberman's brain. Um, but he's just he takes command in this whole scene to save everyone from the dreaded Cyberman's. In the first volume of Running Through Corridors, I forget if it was Rob Shearman who said it or Toby Haydock who said it, in-universe, there's no way that Jamie should recognize the pun. We're going to give them a complete metal breakdown. Yeah, yeah. However, at this point, they've decided that Jamie is going to understand everything, or at least react to it positively, and he and Troughton have their great little straight man, comic man routine going on. So the pun and Fraser Hines' is groaning, probably breaking character to do that. It works very well. Yeah, oh, it's it's a funny moment, yeah. <laughs> I, I meanwhile they locked Kafton and Cleek up in the testing room, which the doctor recommended, by the way. And of course, the Cyberman in there, the, the dummy has got its gun. Which That's he must right. have seen when he Chekhov's went. Chekhov's gun, he, as I mentioned earlier, yes. Yeah. He must have seen it though when he went when he was checking out the Cyberman in the earlier episode and went, Oh, it's a dummy, it's a mock-up. Did he not say see oh a, or did he just assume the gun was a fake. But anyway, they leave him with the gun and then they have uh, Cleek suddenly goes from, oh, well, that's the plan over then. Kaftan's just goads him every time, doesn't she? Like saying, the gun, Eric, the gun. And he suddenly gets a brainwave. Oh, yes, I will be mastered with this gun. And now they will have to listen. Yeah. 
And the famous line, the best line for me, it was logical. Uh, yes. <laughs> Crafton's face when he says the doctor will be a very precise target. She's like, oh God, he's, he's actually thinking of, she looks scared of him. <laughs> he's doing insanity acting at this point in the story. Yeah, he's pretty much lost it. Yeah, he's, he still thinks after everything that happened that he can still control the Cybermen and suddenly be master. But yeah, he's mad. So <laughs> he goes in and says, Doctor, what about this? And the implication is he shoots the Doctor. Cue credits. I want to talk about the resolution of that cliffhanger in episode four. <laughs> yes. Because uh, cool. Shearman and Hado talk about this as well in Running Through Corridors. It's a very specific and now lost style of freeze-frame acting. The characters reprise the cliffhanger. The credits come up on screen. Tomb of the Cybermen, Jerry Davis, Kid Peddler, episode four. The actors stand still and do freeze-frame acting while the credits are scrolling by on screen. Part three of Unearthly Child, Old Mother helpfully holds up the knife to the camera for a good 45 seconds while the credits roll over it. And something similar happens in part four here. You would never have that anymore because now you have the credits at the bottom of the screen and whole scenes are going on underneath the credits. But yeah. in the 60s, you would have actors literally freeze in-universe so the credits can go by. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's very true. You never see that now. And Callum's been the target of, this, of the gun. So he stepped inside saying, look out, Doctor, and he's only injured. How he's only injured, I don't know, because when you saw the gun in action just in the last episode, it looked like a flare comes out the gun. It's, it's like this dramatic. Right, How right. that doesn't kill him, I do not know. <laughs> but anyway, he's only injured, allegedly. And he opens the hatch and demands to speak to the cyber controller. And I love how the Cybermen are just all down there and they're hearing this and they just sort of all stand around and go, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Toberman's blank expression gave me the shivers. I wrote here. Toberman's under control of the Cybermen, obviously. See, it's funny that you and I have very different note-taking styles, Dave. You write, Toberman gave me the shivers. You know what I wrote? The Cybermen thoughtfully give Toberman a flowing cloak. <laughs> Got to the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the cloak is necessary because it's covering the fact that he now has a robotized arm. Yeah, so the controller goes up. I mean, Jamie says to Cleek, you're daft, uh, which I thought was a lovely moment. And he says to him, if you think you can control the Cybermen even now, you're dafter than I thought you were. And yeah. he just goes, go away. <laughs> so the cyber controller comes up with Toberman, and Toberman is told, you know, like, watch the, we're delighted you're back. Go and watch them, the Doctor and co. But yeah, um, the Cybermen have very little energy and need to revitalize. So the cyber controller is literally sort of gurgling his words by this point because he can hardly speak because he's not got any energy. I was just thinking, why not put the revitalizer then underground? So they, they, what were they going to do? Wake up in the tomb and then they would have to go upstairs to revitalize. Mm. A bit of a design flaw in the tomb, I thought. Just have it beside the tomb. Yeah, that's not very logical, is it? They've got to go up all these stairs, but what if they ran out of energy before he got there? Which is literally what happens. But there is this great trend in the Troughton years of 
three actors all popping their heads around the wall or the corner one, two, three. And it happens again in this scene with the doctor yes. and Jamie and Professor Parry. I, every time that happens, I love it. And it happens a lot in the Trout and Hero. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that as well. Cyber Leader is that sort of thingy that he, he actually says to them, you will help me go into the revitalizer. So they bung him in and then Jamie, I think it is, ties a knot around it and they actually think that it's going to keep him in there. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. should have turned on the power. They should have left him in there with the power off. Yes. Yeah, they kind of, somebody's put the power on. So he is revitalized. And Victoria again plays Captain for a fool by saying, well, there's another gun in that room. And they like, oh, is there? Oh, my God, we better check. Oh. But yeah, the cyber controller gets out literally by just punching his arm through the, through the machine. It looks a lot more impressive in the book, trust me. Yeah, Toberman overpowers Klieg now. So Klieg's like, I thought you, you were to watch them. Ah! And he gets sort of chopped. Again, he's no killed. He's, he's just sort of knocked out. Um, and the catch is opened. I thought that was quite vicious the way he done it. He just sort of goes, turns around, and then you just see this hand just <laughs> chopped. I was a little critical of the directing in my notes. I think that may have to do with the vision mixing more than Morris Barry. They cut away maybe a millisecond too fast or a millisecond too slow, but I said that it's a poor reveal of Toberman's cyber arm. I criticized Shirley Cookland for having trouble lying down during Captain. Oh, Jeffy. God, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, so it does seem like great because the smoke is pouring out of, of her clothes, but <laughs> her struggling to lie down is not the best death acting. Uh, Roy Stewart then walked off camera and comes back with a very empty Cyberman costume, which also uh, is a little transparent. <laughs> yeah, it's another gruesome day for Kaftan, isn't it? She, so she uh, is closing the hatch when they're rotting the hatch open and then tries to shoot the cyber controller and even says, those guns will not work on me. And unfortunately, she gets the flare or whatever it is as well. And yeah, she just, she's got a very comical sort of, I'll reposition my bum on the floor here before I die. <laughs> Whereas in the book, Jerry Davis makes it much more graphic. He writes three Cyberman novelizations because he does 10th Planet, he does Doctor Who and the Cybermen, and then he does this. So in the novelization, the cyber controller is, again, speaking in all capital letters, which he's not doing on television. <laughs> Careful, screamed Victoria, page 128. But Captain fired again and again, too furious to hear her. The controller raised his cyber gun. Again, Victoria screamed, but it was too late. As Victoria and Callum watched in horror, the black cyber weapon rattled its deadly message and Captain slowly subsided onto the floor, the telltale smoke creeping from the neck of her tunic. Oh, dear. Yeah. You can be more graphic. And I've heard that some of the novels have got some really graphic deaths. Yeah. When you get to the invasion and Ian Martyr, he gets even more so. Oh, yeah. But the TV and, is very graphic as well because you have the smoke pouring out of Shirley Cookland, and then when the Cyberman dies later on, you have the gunge, the foam coming out of its chest unit. Which given a lot of uh, screen time in terms of debate on the TV at the time, uh, yeah. which I'll, I'll get to at the end. The cyber controller, we think, has been killed because Toberman's just sort of like slammed him against the, the, the panel and he's... He's, it looked like his head exploded or whatever, but of course, as we find out, it's because it's a dummy. Uh, <laughs> huh. 
And so the doctor told him and go into the tomb because he wants to make sure that the rest of them are, you know, under ice forever, as he puts it. Because fortunately, the cyber controller said earlier to the others, go into the tomb again to conserve energy. I mean, he didn't know that. He could have went down there and then it's just fully Cybermen just walking about. But, right. okay. And, yeah, it's when he says to Toberman, doesn't it? He says, like, look at Kaftan, evil. And it's the yes. very, yeah. Cleek, though, nobody sees sneaks him after them. So Cleek picks up the gun and gets up. He's a, like Kaftan Eller, he's able to open his eye. Oh, nobody's watching me. And goes down <laughs> the stairs with him. Toberman then batters a bench, so he, he kind of, they go to the tomb to do what they're going to do, and then Toberman just goes evil or something, and then just slams his fist down and destroys a bench. Yeah, he's not a character with a lot of agency. No. So, Cleek, of course, wants to start it up again, because he still has this mad idea that he can bargain with the Cybermen. And so the Doctor then mocks him again and coerces him and says, um, I could have worked for you. Well, Doctor, if I had known your imagination, you could have worked for me. <laughs> and it's all to get him into a false sense of security. And he's like, yes, yes, master of the world, brilliant. Well, now I know you're mad. <laughs> I get a big, goofy grin on my face every yeah. time I hear that. That is the ultimate Patrick Troughton Doctor moment. It's, it's terrific. It is brilliant. Cleeg's look as well, where he's just staring into space because he's completely gone crackers. He's like, yes, master of the world. Yeah, he falls for it, for sure. Yeah, he does. Victoria slags off Hopper again, because, wasn't it, she says, um, we need, to, what was it she says to him? Something like, um, it's good to know that you, we've got you if we need it, or something. Very, very sarcastic with Captain Hopper. Yeah, because he was, well, a bit condescending earlier, calling her Vic and, and so yeah. on. Yeah, so Cleek's got this mad... I but and then a Cyberman attacks and kills him. Here's how it's staged in the book, page 136. I'm not going to do the accent. No, I have a better idea, he said. A much better idea. I shall leave you to the Cybermen. I have no doubt they will have a use for you or parts of you. He smiled, and as he smiled, a metal hand and arm swung down in a tremendous fatal chop. Still smiling, he fell forward to the ground, dead. As I recall, on television, he dies off-screen, and it's implied that he's mauled to death off-screen, but in the book, it's right there. Yeah, because you see him sort of dragged off, and then you just hear a blood-curdling scream from him, so he's obviously been murdered, and the doctor and Jamie's face is just... Because Jamie's down here as well at this point. Just sort of have a look as if to say, oh, you know, it's a gruesome murder that's just happened. And fortunately, no Toberman has a fight with the the cycle. Yeah, often these novelizations are based on the camera script and they don't reflect what happened the changes that are made in rehearsal. So it's quite possible that Jerry Davis scripted this for Cleed to die on camera and Morris Barry changed it to have him die off screen. That's a speculation, yeah. but I don't know for sure. Sorry, you were Probably saying about... Violent. Yeah, too violent. Toberman then has a fight with the Cyberman. And this is where you see the guts of the Cyberman. So he just sort of rips off his chest and then you see what's regarded as blood or cyber fluid. Yeah, the guts of the Cyberman. So this was condemned on Talkback, which was this TV show where Kit Peddler and a psychiatrist were getting savaged by all these people saying, Doctor Who's too violent for children. And then these two defending the show saying, well, actually, it's fine. Yeah. 
So that's the old blood and guts bit. And the doctor says, well, the last time it was for, I can't remember what he says, but however many years, but now it must be forever. And he puts it on, so they're, they're frozen again. But he until, now has, until season 22, so they're not frozen forever. 22, yeah. So the doctor sends everyone outside now because what he's wanting to do is re-electrify the door and the hatch. Unfortunately, though, the cyber controller isn't as dead as they thought he was. Mm, they never are. They never are. Yeah, it was a really quick adjustment. So he say, he just says, right, I'm going to electrify the doors and the hatch. And then literally a minute later, he, a couple of seconds later, he goes, right, that's it. <laughs> so it must have been a simple wee switch on the panel that just done all this in a one And when I say run, run, obviously him and uh, another troutism really that comes up every now and then is when I say run, run, and then they run away. Peter Davison yeah. uses it a lot later on as well. But Toberman is really, really heroic at the end, thankfully. So they get out, but the cyber controller's chasing them and they have to shut the door. But of course, if they shut the door, everyone's going to get electrocuted. So Toberman comes in and says, no, I, you, the doors remain closed. And yeah, <laughs> but does this mean that the door's no longer electrified? That's a good question. Um... I mean, it's this very Doctor Who trope, this noble self-sacrifice of a tertiary character to save the plot. We see Jerry Davis do it again with regard to William Marlowe's character in Revenge of the Cybermen. But, I mean, obviously you can't blame Jerry Davis for what Eric Sayward is going to do in 1985, but the implication is those doors are no longer electrocuted by 1985 when the Cybermen are reawakened. Yeah, because the, the, I guess the... Hatching the controls still are, but the door isn't because he, they've just used all the charge now, haven't they? Could be. And again, there's a sequel to the story coming up in another 19 years, so <laughs> the way the doctor stays the day isn't quite relevant anymore. Yeah, Toberman doesn't he get a funeral? I mean, they just leave him there. They're like, we've got to go back to the ship. They didn't take yeah. him with him. I had that in my notes too. They left his corpse there forever. That's horrible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everyone else obviously is in the tomb, so you can you can understand that because they had to get out as quick as possible, so they didn't have time to drag everyone out. But yeah, Toberman just is lying there. They just sort of go, "Oh, what a brave man!" and then they just leave his body and go. Um, and Viner's body and Hayden's body and Quig and Catherine's body are also all left behind, presumably. Yeah, they'll be in the tomb, um, locked up. Well, yeah. possibly. And we have a lovely ending with the motif again. So it zooms up to the, the motif on the wall again. Um, and our Cybermat, of course, has escaped. I'm not sure what one lone Cybermat is going to be able to do, but I love how Morris Barry is always coming back to these enormous cyber relief heads on the walls of the tomb. He's always giving reaction shots of them. It makes them a character in the story. That's another thing to praise about his direction, I think. Yeah, I agree. And that's the end of the story. Until, of course, season 22, as you said. That's a story for another time. Um, some other things I found out about this story. Um, originally, there was going to be an acknowledgement of Toberman as a brave man by saying that they were going to recognise him in the official records, but they cut it out. And oh. the making predictions line that the doctor says was also added in rehearsal. So he says that line, doesn't he, about um, that's the end of the Cyberman or something, Jamie says, and he says... Well, we don't like to make predictions. 
the bit about Toberman getting recognized in the official record is not part of the book, but he does get a very heroic death scene. Page 140. Toberman flexed his shoulders and gave a final great push. The doors closed. There was a blue arc of current that flung the doctor and Jamie away like nine pins. As they picked themselves up, they saw the great figure of Toberman, his metal arms spread-eagled as he slid slowly down to the ground, still forever, in front of the doors he had closed with his life. That's a pretty classy death scene. That is a well-written death scene, yeah. <laughs> Desmond Llewellyn visited Morris Barry, but was informed that Professor Parry had been cast. So I think the implication is that he could have been a Professor Parry. Oh, he would have been great as Professor Parry. Oh, wow. That was so sad that we didn't get him in the Doctor Who universe. Eric Klieg was offered to, I'm going to butcher this, Vladek Shebal, who was Kronstein in from Russia Willow. Huh. After episode one, Sidney Newman phoned Peter Bryant to congratulate him, effectively sealing his producership. And that gives us a long run of memorable stories from season five. You have the Ice Warriors, you have the Well of Fear, you have Fury from the Deep. I'm not a big fan of the wheel in space, but that's David Whitaker trying to do for the Cybermen what he had done for the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. So I give him an E for yeah. that. Australia, as I always say on this podcast, as we know, were quite very strict with their censors. And it's thanks to them, of course, they were because we've got all these clips back. Yeah. But Australia gave this serial an airy and wouldn't broadcast it until an appeal was made to change the rating. Oh, wow. But but surprisingly, after all that, they showed it twice. They broadcast mm. it twice in Australia. And the original tapes, of course, were wiped by September 1969, and BBC Enterprises got rid of it by 1974. It was only purchased by four countries. One of them was Hong Kong, and it was returned from Hong Kong in 92, January 92. And when it was released on VHS, it was top of the sales charts. That's right, I remember that. And I was one of the American purchasers. I think it, I can't remember if it beat Aliens or it beat, um, what was the other one? Um, it was a big famous film anyway, and, and it was top of the charts. Final thoughts on Tomb of the Cybermen? I am coming up with a list of my 60 best Doctor Who stories of all time because I'm moderating a panel at the Long Island Doctor Who convention next month, August 2023, called 60 for 60. And I'm trying to narrow down my list of the 60 greatest of all time. And it's interesting with the classic series because I don't want to have every single Dalek story on there. I don't want to have every single Cyberman story on there. I'm going to have to leave some stories out and have other stories stand in for them. Like I'm going to have Dalek Invasion of Earth, but not the original the Daleks. I think this story belongs on a list of the 60 greatest Doctor Who stories of all time, but you have to acknowledge the racial politics were totally normal for the era. Mm -hmm. Shirley Cookland was a Jewish actress. She's cast as a villainess because Doctor Who did a lot of that. Any refugee Jewish actor is cast as a villain. But Marco Polo, Planet of Giants, The Savages, uh, Celestial Toymaker, several other examples that are fleeing from my head as I try to come up with them. And then, of course, you have Toberman and you have all of Abominable Snowman, Marco Polo. Really unfortunate to look at now, 60 years later, but it's not like the new series has clean hands. 
I'm just trying to figure out if that part of the story makes it fall out of my top 60. I'm arguing towards leaving it in anyway because the direction is astounding when you're watching the show in sequence. It has all these iconic lines. It has Patrick Troughton at his absolute best. When I'm watching it in 1992 or 1993 with a dorm full of skeptical college boys, <laughs> they didn't love it the way that I did, but I think this is a cliche. I think it holds up really well in spite of some of the problems with the production. So I think it's probably a borderline top 60 choice. Only borderline your top 60? Really? There's so many other great stories that I could watch over and over again that don't have the problematic yeah. racial elements. Like Seeds of Doom is definitely going in my top 60. Ambassadors of Death is definitely going in my top 60. Gunfighters is definitely going in my top 60. And of course, I have to account for the new series as well. There are some new series stories that I want to put in there. So there's a lot of competition. But I think Tomb of the Cybermen is a, is a shortlist finalist for my greatest 60 of all time. I think it's still a stone-cold classic. It really is. It still packs a punch. I mean, there's so many, as I say, gruesome deaths in this and shock moments and such memorable moments as well. I mean, it's got three good... This is another story which has got every cliffhanger's pretty good. And um, you say, the part two cliffhanger is God tier. So there's always oh, that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of the best. Um, certainly of the 60s, if not all in Doctor Who. Um, it's just an amazing cliffhanger. And I'll tell you, I would have this, I would not put Evil of the Daleks in my top 60, but I would put this in my top 60. Of course, the problem is, do I also want to have the invasion in my top 60? Because I think the invasion is even better. And do you want to have two Trout and Cybermen story in the same list? <laughs> not Wheel in Space, then. <laughs> no, Wheel in Space is uh, one of my clunkers, sad to say. Don't like it very much. <laughs> Stick out moment? There's so many in this one. The Doctor and Victoria talking in the tombs at the end of part three, you know, just gives you all the feels. Yeah. In fact, when they were coming up with the vidfire system to take the grainy film trances and restore them back to video, that was the theme they used as a test project. So on the very original DVD release of Tomb, before they had vidfire, they included that scene vidfired as an Easter egg. And I was watching it with my jaw agape because it looked so good. It did look so good. I remember that. Yeah. And then later on, we got the entire story of Vidfire, and they Vidfired everything eventually, except for um, Time Meddler, which uh, didn't have enough good film quality. But I love yeah. those Vidfire looks. I love it. Oh, I mean, when they first came out, these 60 stories Vidfired, they were, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? It was just, oh my God. I mean, like, how good do they look? It I think the Aztec was the, was the first DVD to have it. But they, I they think it was, yeah. Yeah, it looked absolutely amazing. I think, um, obviously, the other obvious one is the coming to life in the tombs. Obviously, it's just an amazing uh, sort of moment where the... Um, in fact, no, 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 let, let's go for the cliffhanger. Of course, the cliff... Like, yeah, the cliffhanger. With uh, you will be like us. Uh, it's just a... That snow and he's just under his eyelid. His eyelid. His eye. <laughs> he's not got an eyelid. Um, yeah, just... One of those moments that everyone remembers. And that's one of the reasons why I love 60s Who so much, because they're filming in a small studio, right? The camera is right on top of everything. There are lots of extreme close-ups. Not to criticize the animation, because the animation is doing us a tremendous service. But when they animated, for example, Galaxy 4, the camera is far back at a distance. So you can see all these incredible 
brightly colored animated vistas. But that wasn't mm -hmm. the way the story was made in studio. As you're watching Galaxy 4, where the camera's all the way back and the characters are very tiny so they can have seven or eight bit on the screen at once, the production notes say that the actual camera script involved a very extreme close-up of Vicky's face. Now, what you're seeing in the animation is the camera thousands of feet back. Having the camera in at close quarters allows you to do that extreme close-up of the cyber controller's face at the end of part two. If you were to do that as a long-distance shot with 17 actors milling around and all eight cybermen in the shot, it doesn't land as well. So the small no, story enough, makes no. the story even better. Well, thank you very much, Jason. It's uh, going over our time with the side it's been a joy speaking to you. Um, where can listeners find you? Well, I have two podcasts you might enjoy. I am one of the rotating hosts on Trap One. I have an episode of Trap One coming out a few days from now as we record this. It'll probably be coming out at the same time that you release this episode. It's an interview with Elizabeth Morton, who's married to Peter Davison. She has oh, okay. a new novel out, and she's also talking to us about her Doctor Who family connections. That's my next Trap One episode. That's trap1.podbean.com and also on all your podcatchers of choice. And then I have my solo project, Doctor Who Literature, where I'm going through the novelizations in publication order. I am just about halfway through the target run. My next episode is going to be Modern Undead with Stephen B. from the New to Who podcast. And many of the people who have been on your show have also been on Doctor Who literature. So you'll hear a lot of familiar voices and hopefully your voice pretty soon. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, we, we were talking about this before, weren't we? Um, did you say the next ones that are free are the 1986 ones, I think you said? Or has it now moved on from there? I have filled up most of the rest of the show and I'm now getting a lot of the Black Archives authors who want to talk to me on the show and I want to talk Thank to them and feature their books. So. I don't have a lot of spaces left, but I'm mulling over a change of format where I'm going to have multiple guests per episode, because if I only do one guest per episode for the next 80 books, I'm going to be running out and not being able to include a lot of good people. So I'll find a way to work you in somewhere, somehow. Ah, thanks. I'll, I'll be up for that. <laughs> well, hopefully I can entice you back in the future. This invasion comes up, for example. I also am completely enamored of ambassadors of death if you have an opening for that almost any philip hinchcliffe story many of the peter davidson's i would love to give a fair shake to some of those unfairly maligned peter davidson stories so <laughs> have, have me in mind and i'll definitely be happy to come back at least once yes i will certainly uh, keep you in mind and uh, yeah I'll, I'll bring you back in the future don't worry glad to hear it thanks so much dave really appreciate this i'll just say till next time but uh, thanks again <laughs>